All right. Well, uh, last two messages that I've preached have been out of chapter 41 of the book of Genesis. Uh, the message uh, the message before last we exposited the chapter and then the last message I went back into it We delved into three of the major themes from that chapter. So by way of reminder, I'll bring you I'll bring those back up in your mind um, If you weren't here for that last message The three major themes we talked about were these number one that God chose you in spite of you not because of you We saw that yet again God chooses to love and use people for his good purposes, not because they're worthy of it per se, worthy of it, but in spite of them not being worthy. And that's, that should be of great comfort to us as Christians. God knows all of our faults and our flaws, our shortcomings, our weaknesses, and yet he chooses to love us anyway. He chooses to use us for his good purpose and his good will in this world. Praise God. That's the power of the cross, folks. The second thing that we talked about was that this world is not our home. Just like Joseph, you will find yourself in a sin-filled culture that you do not fit into. Uh, Blake talked about that this morning. Did a good job. He he really touched on some of those those themes this morning. If you're a Christian, listen, listen. Stop trying to be the cool kid. Stop trying to fit in. You won't. You can't. You're not going to be the popular kid. Stop it. You need to hear and accept what Jesus had to say on the matter. What was that? Jesus said that the world hated him because he was not of the world. And he also said that because we belong to him and follow him, the world will ergo hate us as well. Living a life of faithfulness to Jesus will bring only hatred from this world. It will not make the world aspire to be like you it will make the world hate you living a life of faithfulness in a in darkness will bring hatred and that shouldn't come as any surprise to us it's exactly what god's word said would happen the word of god tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will suffer persecution not might not could you will now, it may be just a little bit. It may just be, you know, something as small as mockery at work. Or maybe, you know, people ridiculing you for not doing the things they do, not watching the shows they watch, not listening to the music they listen to, not having the same worldview that they do. Or it might be something as much as you lose your life over it. It might be anywhere in between. But the truth of the matter is, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That should be expected. It shouldn't come as a surprise. That doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it doesn't um, disappoint us or frustrate us. Because a lot of times the people that are persecuting us are people that we love. They're people that we would count as friends. They might even be our close family members. So I'm not saying it won't hurt. But it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. John fifteen nineteen, we see Jesus saying this. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Because it would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Philippians three nineteen to 21 tells us that the end of all worldly and ungodly people is destruction. That they set their minds on earthly things. But it goes on to tell us. That our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is from heaven. We're aliens here. 
I may be a citizen of the United States, but I do not fit into the broader life that is count. If I'm living a life that's faithful to Jesus Christ, in many ways, I live a life that is counter to the culture. So we need to settle it in our hearts, the fact that ultimately this world is not our home, which is precisely what Jesus told us. And number three, for the Christian, the problem of evil is no problem at all. I told you that God's word tells us that God uses sin sinlessly. He takes those things that wicked people mean for evil, and he uses it for good. He uses them for his own glorious purposes. And that's great news to us because it means that there's nothing that we suffer that is suffered for no reason. So let me give you a big term that is sometimes used in this context. It's called gratuitous evil or gratuitous suffering. What's that mean? You familiar with this term, gratuitous? It's, it's there simply for the sake of being there. So we might say, for example, that a movie has gratuitous sensuality. What does that mean? Well, it means it has some kind of unnecessary sexuality or sensuality. It's not needed for the plot development. It's not needed for the character development. It's simply there to be defiling. It's just evil for the sake of evil. That's gratuitous evil. And it's a major theme in Hollywood today, you may have noticed. But the wonderful thing is... The wonderful truth of the scripture is that there is no such thing as gratuitous suffering in the life of the Christian. Is there suffering in the life of the Christian? Yes. If you are promised persecution, I can promise you that means at some sort, at some level, there will be suffering. There will be trials and tribulations and things you go through that you do not enjoy. There will be suffering, but it is not gratuitous. It's not suffering just for no reason. It's not suffering just to suffer. No, instead, God is actively using it. He's using this trial. He's using this thing that seems to us evil. And he's handling this evil sinlessly, and he's using it for his good purpose. Well, I can't see it. Well, that doesn't mean it's not there. God looks by a little longer time span than you. And his eyes see a few more details than yours. Once or, one or two, right? And we see that very thing in the life of Joseph. Through every trial, there is a God who's at work directing it all to the outcome that God desires. And you might notice that he's directing the outcome for the good of his people. Even his people who had mistreated Joseph. Can God use my life to bless people who don't always understand me, who misjudge my motives, who might treat me wrongly from time to time. Yes, of course. You know why? Because there are no other people. <laughs> it's true. That's part of the great thing about the Christian faith. In essence, it's a family, and it's a family where sometimes we hurt each other, and then the Spirit of the Lord convicts us and says, you've got to go make that right. It's a family where you don't get to just take your ball and leave. And that's tough. But you know what that does over the long term? That sanctifies us. It makes us love each other more deeply. It makes us care for each other more deeply. It makes us give each other the benefit of the doubt more. In short, it forms us into the image of Christ. It's just that that forming is not always fun. <laughs> There's no such thing as gratuitous suffering in the life of the Christian. All those evil things that were done against Joseph, God was weaving together and directing together for good. Enough so, in fact, 
that we will see Joseph declare later to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I'm here to declare to you that is a common refrain in the Christian life. There are a lot of people who mean you evil and that God is weaving that together for his glory, for his good purposes, and ultimately actually even for your good. Now, before we get into chapter 42, let's pray and ask God for guidance. Lord, we pray you would show us great things from your word today. Lord, I ask you would use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and my teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Lord, speak through your word today for the building up of your people and for the advancement of your kingdom. Transform us and renew us by the power of your word and your spirit. We ask that everything that's said and done today brings honor and glory to you and to you alone. For you alone are worthy of it, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name that we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. (coughs) All right. Turn with me to chapter 42 in the book of Genesis. Chapter 42, starting at verse 1. Give you a second to find it. Chapter 42. Genesis 42. Keep in mind also the timeline of Joseph's life up to this point. This is a crazy timeline. Remember, when he was betrayed and sold off into slavery by his brothers, he was just 17 years old. At the time that he was elevated to a position of power by Pharaoh, he was 30. Roughly 13 years in the prison and in the pit. That's not a fast overnight ascension to power. Then there were the seven years of plenty when Joseph was in power and he was preparing Egypt for all the seven years of famine that were yet to come. And so later on in chapter 45, we will see Joseph tell his brothers that there had been two years of famine already. That's the second time he's talking to them. And that there are still five yet to go. That means in this chapter, chapter 42, it's been about 22 years since his brothers had sold him off into slavery. They had not seen him for 22 years. His dad was 108 years old when he was sold off into slavery. His dad is now 130. So it makes sense when you think along those timelines some of the things that we'll see today. Okay, I'm telling you that first to set up what we're going to see in some of these verses later. How could his brothers not recognize him? You ain't seen somebody for 22 years and the last time you saw them when you were 17? Some of y'all might not recognize me. I've grown in spirit. Yeah. All right, let's start. 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we might live and not die. Okay, I'm going to bring up what I just told you. He's 130 years old. Do you think he is getting up out of his tent and hiking into town every day to talk to his pals over coffee? No. Well, then how does he know that there's grain for sale in Egypt? Who did he learn that from? Probably one of his sons. One of his sons that knows what actually happened to Joseph. Hey, guys, there's grain for sale. Oh, awesome. There's famine. We got to go buy it. Where's it at? Egypt. Egypt. 
Now listen, isn't this interesting? When, Jacob's, uh, when Jacob learns there's grain for sale in Egypt, he notices that his boys are all looking around at each other. You ever been in that situation? I have as a coach. I've gotten into the huddle and I say, hey, this is what we should do. And all these guys are looking around at each other and you're like, what? What am I missing? There's obviously insider information. Y'all are thinking the same thing, but I don't know what it is. Right? You like to have to pry it out of them. The movie Zero Dark Thirty is an account of the decade-long military hunt for Al-Qaeda leader and terrorist mastermind Osama bin Laden. He was eventually hunted down and killed by SEAL Team 6, or also known as DevGrew. But as the SEAL team was being briefed for their mission, many of the members began looking around at each other. And the intelligence officers that were briefing them were trying to figure out what's going on. And only later did you find out why. One of the SEALs comes up and says, listen, here's what's really going on. You know, a few years ago, we were on this same operation. We were told we were going to go in, we were going to capture or kill bin Laden. Bin Laden wasn't there, the intelligence was bad, and we lost some guys. Now the intelligence officer realizes, ah, that's why y'all were looking around at each other. There was something, there's some kind of backstory here that they weren't aware of. The same thing's going on with the sons of Jacob. Hey, there's grain for sale down in Egypt. Egypt? Grain, grain for sale in Egypt? Yeah, what, why are you all looking around at each other? Go get some grain. And they're looking around at each other because they're all thinking the same thing. Yeah, that Joseph that we told Dad he's dead? Egypt's where he sold, we sold him off to. Egypt where we, is where we sent him so we'd never hear from him again. And now we're going to that same Egypt. And our sin, this story that we told Dad... This sin may find us out. When Egypt is mentioned, it perks their ears up. They have a dark secret that they've hoped was long behind them and forgotten. 22 years behind them and forgotten. But the funny thing is about secret sins, they have a way of catching up to us. They have a way of running us down. In the words of Moses, you can be sure... That your sin will find you out. The boys are looking around at each other because they all know what they've done. And they're afraid that their day of reckoning is drawing close. And you know what? They're right. In fact, we're going to see this very thing later on in this chapter. Second point from this, these just couple of verses. We have reason to believe that this is all taking place in the first year of famine. <laughs> There's seven years of famine coming and they don't know to be prepared. They are caught unaware because they are not prepared for the hard times coming. Remember, the seven years before were times of plenty. You know what happens to people in times of plenty? They get the false idea that it will always be like this. Don't worry. There's no application to us and our economy right now out of that. Don't worry. I'm sure it will always be good. No need to be prepared, right? So seven years of good times. Hey, we don't have to sock stuff away. We've got so much food, we can't eat it all. And then all of a sudden, on the heels of that, a famine. Typically, it doesn't work that way. Weather patterns don't usually work that way. When you've got a huge, big harvest one year, the next year might just be average. But you don't typically go from the biggest yield you've ever had to the smallest yield you've ever had. I know. <laughs> Somewhat involved in wheat, right? 
I can remember we had one year in Kansas where we got so little rain that we didn't even have, the wheat couldn't even sprout. It didn't even germinate. That's dry. And we get less than 30 inches of rain down here. We're like, man, it's dry. We got to get some rain. You know, my little brother, I'm telling him about it. He's like 30 inches. It's like three years for us, you know. Well, that's basically what's going on. Here's something to think about. The famine that was gripping the wider world and the culture was also affecting God's people. And that's a great point for us to keep in mind because just because you're part of God's holy people set apart by God does not mean, therefore, that you won't suffer because the ills of the country or the culture that you find yourself in. Right? Just because you are God's special people does not mean that during famine there's going to be a little rain cloud that just comes over your house. Man, that'd be fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Give me the power of weather modification. We'll have rain twice a week on the schedule, right? No, the culture and the ills and the things that are affecting the broader world, the broader country, the broader culture affect God's people too, right? When, when the Hebrews were carted off into slavery, did the, the true worshipers of God get a free pass? Hey, you, you guys, you're okay. You stay here. We're just taking the wicked. Oh, it affected them as well. Hey, inflation hurts God's people just as much as unbelievers. Ask believers in Mexico if cartel violence affects them. Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, and other catastrophes, do they affect God's people too? Yes, of course. Jesus promised that in this world you will have trouble. So if you think your life's going to be nothing but sunshine and rainbows since you're a Christian now, you've got another thing coming. You don't understand the basics of the faith. The basics of Christian faith is not that you come to Christ and he makes just everything wonderful. It's that he's with you through it all. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Being part of God's people does not exempt you from the trials and tribulations of this life. And in fact, just as we said a little bit ago, sometimes it's quite the opposite. It can create more trials. Living a faithful Christian life virtually guarantees trials and tribulations and persecution. Okay, let's go on. Verse 3, so ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And obviously the ten, Joseph's not with them, and Benjamin's at home. By the way, if you think about it in birth order, that's the two youngest boys. But they're also the two boys of the wife that he loves, Rachel. Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with, brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Remember, in Jacob's mind, Joseph is long dead. So Benjamin's all he has left from his wife, the wife that he loves. He's the only boy left from Rachel. Only heir left. Verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Is in the promised land? That's the land of milk and honey. Famine in the promised land? I don't know if you've ever really looked at the promised land so much, but it's very odd that God would tell his people, I want you to camp out here. The reason it's odd is there's no major rivers running through the middle of it. And you would think like, hey, that's a, that's a, source, of, that's a source of water for everybody all the time. I mean, let's go pitch our tents around the Nile or, or at least close to the Jordan, right? But wh why this land? That is perpetually dependent on rain. Ah, 
It's as if God is saying to his people, I'm going to make you dependent on me. And I'm going to show myself faithful. And he did. But the famine is in the land of Canaan. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. They knew that in this time of famine, their lives and the lives of their families literally depended on the favor of this unknown Egyptian official. So they're not going in with big arrogance, right? They're going in in humility. They're walking on eggshells. We're not from here. We didn't harvest this grain. But we need some of it. They paid him great respect. They bow all the way down to the earth, not just on one knee. They were prostrating themselves fully with their faces in the dirt. The ultimate act of submission and reverence. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now listen, it makes a lot of sense when you consider the last time the brothers saw Joseph, he was a boy of 17. Now he's a grown man closing in on 40. I'm 44 right now. If someone had not seen me since I was 17, they probably wouldn't recognize me either. At 17, I was a baby-faced, 6'2", 205-pound kid, tall and skinny, with a shining visage so handsome it was difficult for people to gaze on me. At 44... I'm a bearded, six foot five, three hundred and five pound, two hundred and two much pounds man. Time may have changed me a bit. The glory may have faded. No need to wear the veil anymore. But I will, I will not admit it. Don't ask me to. But Joseph was the youngest of all the brothers. He's the one that's changed the most. He's the youngest of all except for Benjamin. He was only 17. But those guys were basically grown men when he left. He's able to recognize them. And they're traveling together. He's able to recognize them. Verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. Now remember that Egypt was... Possibly the strongest nation on earth at this point. They were certainly a powerhouse. So it would make sense that there are definitely spies. So he's not saying something that wouldn't make sense. Right? You have these people coming in from a different, a different country. You don't know who they are. You don't know what their intentions are. And so he's saying, you're spies. Even though he knows better. Why would he do that? Well, he's testing these brothers. And what do they say? Verse 10, they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. I love this next part. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. We're honest men. 
The men that just told him, yeah, we got 12 brothers and one of them's no more. <laughs> You're honest men, are you? Same honest men that have been living a lie and keeping it secret for 20 years? Oh, yeah, you're honest men. However, seeing his brothers bow down to the ground reminds him of those dreams God had given him so long ago. It is very possible that at this point he has forgotten about all that. That was at 17. Did you have a dream or two at 17 that you have absolutely forgotten about? I've got entire like six months out of my <laughs> Hey, thanks, pal. I'm like, uh, you're welcome. What, what did I do? He's like, I just fixed your hole. Dude, remember in high school? What hole in the wall? What are you talking about? Dude, remember in high school when you got mad? You punched the wall and you punched a hole in it? And then you covered it with a picture so mom didn't see it? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, well mom went downstairs and she was moving the pictures and she found it. Guess who had to fix it? <laughs> I was like, well, you're welcome. It was character building. I'm helping you, really. <laughs> yeah, there are things that you don't remember until somebody brings it up again. And it may have been this with him. He's realizing that God was fulfilling those dreams that he gave to Joseph. God gave his word, and he will make good on it. No doubt it had taken far longer than Joseph had expected. Probably wasn't in the way that he had expected it to be. But God was, in fact, making good on his word. God always fulfills his promises. God always makes good on his word. Sometimes through the most unlikely of circumstances. 13, and they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Can't you just see Joseph smile just a bit? One's no more. Is that right? Joseph said to them, it is as I've said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words might be tested, whether there actually is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all to get together in custody for three days. How would you like that? What, what do you think would be going through your head if you had, remember, basically walked? You took your donkeys with you, your load-bearing animals, to another nation to get grain. And now you've been told, you've been told your spies, you've been falsely accused. See the irony here? And thrown in prison. What, what would your thoughts be? Will you ever get out of here? I ain't coming back to this place. It's the ultimate turnaround of events. The same men that threw Joseph in the pit are now themselves in the prison. By the same one that they threw into the pit. It's as if their sin has finally found them out, isn't it? 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain here confined, where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Remember, Joseph realizes what's going on. If we don't get grain back to those families, they are going to die. 
He's not going to have that. The same brothers that abused him, the same brothers that lied about him for 22 years to their death, the same brothers that threw him in the pit and sold off into slavery, he is concerned for. I'm going to tell you a hard truth. That should be the heart of every Christian. There are other Christians that drive me nuts. But I should still be concerned for them. Why? Because they are God's people. Should I be concerned for their well-being? Yes. What if they don't like me? We can settle that in eternity. There will be a day where their mind will not be clouded by sin and my mind will not be clouded by sin and we will get along swimmingly. And until that day comes, my job is to, in fact, look out for those people. Even when they drive me nuts. And one of the good parts about that is other people will also look out for me. And sometimes I drive them nuts too. I say all the time, I say if if people that are my friends that have known me for years and years, that's a testament to their character. (laughs) They can tolerate me, right? In some regards, we're all like that. Joseph still loves his brothers even though they've done him wrong. Let the rest go, carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, this is verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You know, a lot of us Christians in America or Christians in the West, we, we would make fun of something like this. We would make fun of people who think some some tumultuous time in their life is because of their own sin. But the text is going to show us that they are right To his credit, at least the brothers understood the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. They knew if you betray innocent blood, God will demand a reckoning. They knew that. It's interesting to note that many modern Christians would laugh at this. The brothers all had a guilty conscience. You know why the brothers all had a guilty conscience? They were guilty. Yeah. Hey, this might sound strange. In the madness of our current culture of accountability-free living. But sometimes the reason you have a guilty conscience is because, well, you're guilty. If your conscience is guilty because you are guilty, then you need to go make it right. Go confess your wrongdoing. Make it right. Restore what you've stolen. Whether that's goods or honor, respect. Love, affection, whatever it is. If you've stolen something from someone, go restore it. If you've slandered someone, go go confess it, apologize. Go make it right. I'm not saying you always have a guilty conscience because you are, in fact, guilty. I realize we can, at times, get our conscience overworked. However, it's very common that we have a guilty conscience because we're guilty, but we have too much pride or not enough courage to go and make it right. 
Maybe if I never say something to them, they'll never find out. That's what the brothers are doing. Just leave it alone. Let's go to dad and tell him what actually happened. Nope. Leave it alone. Let that sleeping dog lie. They'll never find it out. What does Moses say? You sure? Sin will find you out. Sometimes, as American Christians, we often have a very loose and naive view of sin and consequences. We are often inclined to think that if we've been forgiven in Christ, then we won't have to face any consequence for our sin. That's simply not true. It is true that when we trust in Christ, God has forgiven us of all of our sins. He's not going to hold us to account to his wrath. We're not going to spend eternity in hell. But that does not mean that those sins, therefore, are without natural consequences. Let's do a little thought experiment here to kind of illustrate this. Say you decide to have sex outside of marriage and you get an STD from it. Get herpes. There is no cure for it. And a few years later, you come to Christ and you repent of your old whorish lifestyle. That is literally the word the scripture uses, and so I will too. You repent of your whoredom. Does that mean that you will therefore be spared from the eternal consequences of it? Yes, of course. Does that mean you will be instantly cured of this disease that you got because of it? No, it does not. Why? Because that is a natural consequence of that sin, of that lifestyle. There are natural consequences for sin that you may have to face. Now, there are other times where you go through trials and tribulations, not because of your own sin. It might be because of someone else's sin. Joseph was not in the pit because of his own sin. He was in the pit because of the sin of his brothers. Even, even the famine that's in Canaan, we are not told the famine was in Canaan because of the sin of the people that lived there. At least not this one. But the famine's there nonetheless. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 talks about this very thing. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. I delight in my sons. They probably wish at times I delighted in them less. Why? Because I'm willing to correct them. The Lord is willing to correct us. And sometimes what he uses for that correction is literally the natural consequence of our sins. Sometimes God's chastening chastening, and correction comes in the form of those natural consequences. Don't deceive yourself into believing that just because you're a Christian, you're somehow immune to the natural consequences of your own sin. You're not. No sinner is immune to the consequences of sin. And though you are born again, I hope if you know the Lord today, you're born again. You're forgiven in Christ. You're in Christ. You are still, in fact, a sinner. You still do sinful things. Why? Because you have flesh. And those sinful things still have natural consequences. And it's why we must be a a humble people, quick to embrace humility, because we do. We fall short. We sin even when we don't mean to. We don't want to. Our pride gets a hold of us in the moment. 
or maybe something else, whatever it is, whatever sinful desire gets a hold of us in the moment, and we do or say things that we, we shouldn't and we regret them later, and we have to embrace the humility of Christ and go back and say, I want to make this right, I'm sorry. Not fun, but it's necessary. Verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them because there was an interpreter between them. Then they turned away from, then he, Joseph, turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon, Simeon from before them and bound him before their very eyes. Uh, many Jewish commentators say that it was Simeon who was the ringleader of the plot to kill Joseph earlier. And that, that's, why it's, uh, that's why Joseph was actually taking Simeon and binding him. He's showing the brothers, hey, I have the power to take this guy, this ringleader, this dude that you're all scared of. I'm not. I can bind him up and do what I want to. That's possible. Simeon was a pretty bloodthirsty guy. He was one of the guys that went in and killed all those men. That's possible. All I'm saying is I, I can't substantiate that from the text. There's no way for me to know. Other, other commentators will say things like, well, Simeon volunteered. He volunteered to take the punishment for his brothers because of how much he loved his brothers. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. But again, you can't substantiate that from the text. The truth is, we really don't know. We do know, though, that Simeon was strong and that Joseph gave the order and had him bound right in front of them. I'll let you know, here's what's going on. My guess is part of that was this. I'm letting you guys go back home. I want you to know for sure he's bound in here. Until you get back with Benjamin, he's going to stay here and bound. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So he's blessing them. These men that cursed him. These men that sold him into slavery, that persecuted him, that spoke only evil of them. The scripture says a few chapters back, they're so angry at him, they cannot even speak a good word about him. And now he's blessing them. They loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Kudos to them. They still see God as sovereign. What's going on? What is God doing to us? It's interesting that this guilty conscience takes what's a blessing and they see it as a curse. Oh my, we're all going to die. We've got, I've got all my money back and all this grain and all these provisions for the journey. And they're so scared, they're trembling. By the way, I don't know if you've ever been that scared. I don't, I don't know if I've ever been that scared. I've been pretty scared a few times. But I can remember there was a time where my daughter was in a pen. There was, we have cattle sort of they're miniature they're they're like cattle but anyway they're smaller but she's in the pen petting this little baby calf and the calf's mom for whatever reason decides she doesn't like that and so that calf's mama turned around and started snorting at her and it was just one of those where i saw it in time 
And that was the first time I thought, I'll kill a cow with my bare hands. But I started hollering, and she charged, but she saw me, and so she stopped. And, of course, by that point in time, I'm between my daughter and this cow, and I'm not happy. I'm, I'm actually chasing her, trying to catch her, because I'm, I'm going to get my hands on you, you know, that kind of thing. But we get done, and my daughter says, Dad, I'm so scared. My, my legs keep shaking. That's real fear. They are genuinely in fear of their life here for good reason. Okay. Their conscience are other, under such guilt that they even regarded something, as, uh, something good as a punishment from God. A guilty conscience doesn't even know how to handle good gifts from God. Let me kind of extrapolate that out. Until you are reconciled to Christ, you cannot rightly understand or see the goodness of God. You cannot rightly understand what God does. Until you are reconciled to Christ, you will misinterpret blessings as curses, and you'll misinterpret curses as blessings. It is impossible, the scripture says, for the carnal mind to rightly interpret God's ways or God's motives or God's way of doing things. It is hostility against God, Romans 8 says. Verse 29, when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, and he took us to be spies of the land. But we said to to him that we are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to me, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Notice something, though, here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we do see a step in the right direction here. I mean, when they get home and Simeon's not with them, you know what they did? They told the truth. Tell him the truth. And they did. They didn't make up a story. They told him the truth, which is at least a small step in the right direction. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. I like Reuben. I know he did a bad thing that we read about a few chapters ago, but I like Reuben. I like what Reuben turned into. I like what he had to do when all the other brothers, when it's at least eight or nine other guys conspiring to kill Joseph, Reuben's like, don't do it. And the scripture says he told them to put the kid in the pit so that he could come back to him. Reuben may be the only brother that doesn't actually know the real story. Because Reuben acts like from then on out, he thinks Joseph is actually dead. And it may have been, he's the oldest, it may have been that the guys are all like, just tell him that. No problem. Reuben is saying, listen, 
I'm trustworthy. I'll defend him with my life. But we've got to go back. And what's sad to see is actually how Jacob responds. What you're not going to really see more of until next chapter is Jacob doesn't know that this famine is going to go on for another six years. Remember, that was Joseph knew that, but these boys didn't. You know what I think is going on? In his, you're going to see they do not go back until they've eaten up all their food. Maybe a year later. I think in Jacob's mind, you know what? That's just the price of doing business. Simeon's there and that stinks. At least we've got food. That's terrible. Eventually, we're going to see these boys go back and we're going to see something awesome. We're going to see Judah act like the man that he is shadowing. He's typology, typing. We're going to see Judah say, you know what? I will be the replacement. Let them go. Thirty-eight, but he said, My son shall not go down with you. Remember, Jacob is addressing Reuben, for his brother is dead. Now that may be a little bit of a poke at Reuben. Because when 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 Joseph was sold off into slavery, Reuben was the oldest. It would have fallen on him to be the one that basically is watching out for all the others. It may be that Jacob is basically saying, in some place in my mind, I still blame you for him being gone. My son is gone. Oh, you're so good at protecting? Well, under your watch, my son is gone. My son is gone. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he's the only one left. How does that make you feel if you're Reuben? You're his oldest son. How do you think Reuben felt? I don't count. None of the rest of these guys count. Just Benjamin. Just Joseph. Reuben didn't get to pick his mom. Reuben didn't get to pick where he came from. Neither did Simeon, neither did Judah, or any of the rest. And I know this, this probably seems trivial, and maybe it seems a little bit petty, but I feel like it deserves being mentioned. You know, it, it would behoove us to remind ourselves every once in a while that people don't get to pick their parents. I can tell you something. I'm a teacher. I've taught for 16 years now. And I have seen teachers be angry at children, students of theirs, because they didn't like their parents. To treat them poorly because of their parents. Listen, they didn't get to choose their parents. Maybe we should recall that as well when we treat other people. One final observation I'd like to make from this chapter and then we'll close. The main thrust of this chapter is that we see Joseph testing his brothers. Joseph knows who his brothers are, but his brothers don't know him. Boy. Jesus does that to us too. He tests us. Jesus does not test us because he needs to know what our faith looks like. He does not test us because he doesn't know what's inside of us. You know why he tests us? We don't know what's in us sometimes. We don't know what we really have become. 
How would you know if it's really gold unless you put it in the fire? The Lord tests us as well. The Bible says that specifically. He leads us through trials and tribulations. And those same trials reveal who we are and who we've become. I'm hoping those trials reveal that you have grown in Christ since the last time you were in that hot pot. 1 Peter 1.7 tells us that God tests us to prove the genuineness of our faith. Listen, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. True faith survives testing. True faith is strengthened in testing. While the world crumbles around the Christian, the Christian clings to Christ. When the world crumbles around the one that's not really a Christian, they run. I'm angry at this. Look at all this trouble. Guess I'll go drown my sorrows. No. In the trial, the Christian clings to Christ. True faith survives testing. It's strengthened in the storm. Let's end in prayer. Dear Lord, please give us hearts that follow you faithfully. Give us hearts with a holy love for you and for your ways. Give us hearts with a holy hatred of sin. God, we confess we do not hate sin the way we should hate sin. God, give us hearts that despise sin. Despise those things that violate your word. Despise those things that interrupt our fellowship with you, that that get in the way. Let our conscience be captive to your spirit. If our conscience is guilty or burdened today because of our own sin, God, I ask you, give us the humility and the courage to make it right. Let us have hearts that are faithful under trial and that do not falter under pressure, but look to you faithfully. Oh God, be our rock and our refuge. It's in Christ's name that I pray. And all God's people said, Amen.